Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to yet another episode of The Inforium, a show about productivity and whatever else that myself and Martin like to talk about. What up, Martin? I don't know. Actually, I am seeing the little breathing issue on your camera, so we're going to find out in the final recording what's going on. I don't know what's going on. This is testing out a new little USB thing, and I haven't yep. tried it before. I am seeing it now. Well... We are a show that likes to constantly experiment with things. Yeah. Whether or not that's a good idea is yet to be determined. That's true. But, you know, maybe we yep. won't be judged. Well, how you, how you been? How was your first um, full week in Minneapolis? Good. It's uh, been good. I actually love it here. I'm about 80% happier on the average day by default. Okay. And like, is it just because of the climate or... Because I don't know. you're in an area that you like better, or like what? I, I mean, there are a lot of different things, so I can't pinpoint it very easily. But mm-hmm. like, even things, even small things that irritate me, like I'm much more able to just brush it off and not be that irritated. Like I just feel calmer and mm. happier in general. Well, it's Pretty either cool. a placebo effect or perhaps your hypothesis about climate and moisture content in the air and humidity and things like that actually has merit yeah or maybe it's just that you know it's i've i've wanted change for so long and now it's here and now i'm doing so there could there could be like 18 reasons Mm -hmm. yeah well i think a lot of people want change right now i've been noticing um that in the past few weeks of riding my bike everywhere i feel a lot better just about my daily routine yeah I'm getting outside, I'm getting sun, I'm getting air, exercise. It just it just makes me feel overall better and I'm excited to work more. It's been a good uh good little change for me. Not a move to a new city, but still a bit of a change. No, well, I think the less time you spend in traffic, the better. You know. Oh like my I gosh. haven't I haven't been driving a lot. I just like went without using my car for two or three days, didn't even think about it. And then mm-hmm. when we went down to the garage, I was like, Oh yeah, I have a car. <laughs> Weird. That's kind of how it's been for me, yeah. Uh, what is it? It's the 5th today of April. So I got the e-bike on the 19th of March. So I have officially had it for two weeks, I think. Yeah. And in that time, I have had to use my car, I believe, three times. Otherwise, everything has been by bike, and I've ridden at least 250 miles. I know it was like 226 just in March, and then there's been five days of April so far. I did 14 this morning, and it was wonderful. The only things I've had to use my car for, and and for the listener, bear in mind that my new house is in, like, the burbs. It's out there, not in a very walkable area. The only thing I've had to use my car for so far, uh, one time yesterday, I drove my mountain bike and my friend Charles's mountain bike to a bike park that's downtown those were mountain bikes you're we're not riding those downtown just it just yeah. wouldn't happen <laughs> those are not optimized for long distances uh and then the other one was right now like anna doesn't have a good bike 
So Anna and I went downtown for some reason um, and we couldn't take the bike. But I will work on maybe convincing her to get one at some point. And in the meantime, everything that I need to do personally, unless I need to haul a ton of stuff, I've been doing on the bike, which is pretty great. So nice. I'm at the point now where I'm like, I still like my car enough that I'm not considering getting rid of it, but I I could maybe do it. The, the biggest hurdle for me to get rid of my car is I do like to ski and go up to the mountains to mountain bike. And you kind of do need a car for that thing. So I'll probably keep mine. It doesn't represent like a financial burden, but it's been interesting just finding out that like for daily life, even if, though I live in a kind of far out area, the e-bike just totally obviates a car. Yeah, that really makes me want to try an e-bike at some point. Don't need well, one yet. Whenever you visit, you can try mine out. Or I bet you could rent one actually. In fact, yeah, I probably. know you can rent them. I don't know exactly where you would do it in Minneapolis, but um, in San Diego and other beach places, I've seen plenty of e-bike rental like stores. Actually, like along the beach towns, uh, like San Diego and Oceanside and places like that, you'll see e-bike rental, electric skateboard rental, scooter rental, all kinds of stuff. In addition to like the birds and the lime scooters and stuff. Yeah. So the first time I ever rode an e-bike actually was in San Diego and it was a lime bike that just had a battery attached to it. And that was like the, the holy crap moment <laughs> going up the first hill. Like what the heck? I don't feel like I'm dying. This is amazing. Anyway. Uh, so on this episode of the Inforium, we are going to start discussing another book. We haven't done this in quite a while, but I like book discussion episodes. The only problem with trying to do one is usually we try to fit an entire book in one episode. Yeah. But one time, we did something a little different that worked out really well. We took the book Influence by Robert Cialdini, or I believe it's Dr. Robert Cialdini, and we split that into, I think that was six episodes, because there are six main influence factors was a that lot. he talks about in that and book. And then we and that split was it up with other ones because of how many it yeah. was. Yeah, so we're going to do that. I don't know if it's going to be six episodes. It might be two or three this time. The book that we're discussing is maybe shorter, but certainly not quite as well split up. But we're going to talk about the book Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And for those who don't know, Annie Duke is a former world championship of poker champion. Uh, one of the highest earning poker players of all time. And I forget what she has, but I believe she has a, a PhD in some field of psychology as well. Uh, and the whole book is essentially applying the lessons that she's taken from a career in professional poker, which is a game where you have to make bets and you have to work with incomplete information, and you're going up against really harsh competition, uh, taking those lessons and applying them to strategies for real-life goals, whether it's business or finding a new job or making personal decisions. So we're going to kind of summarize the book, go through, talk about lessons we've learned, and we're going to do this over the course of a few episodes because this book is... There's a lot to it, and I don't think we can fit it in a one-hour-long episode... And also fit cult member Q and A in there. Yeah, so with the way up. we've been doing it lately, like I think it would be really long to try to do mm -hmm. one book, and we'd probably have to cut out a bunch of pieces that would be interesting. Still, I also have to admit, like when I read books, I'm a very slow reader. I don't get through, through books this is, quickly. This is true. 
you can truck through a book. I did catch up like, to you're where you're at, at last night. <laughs> yeah, that took me, I think that took me five days. Now, the problem with that I have, and I don't know if you have this problem, but when I'm reading a nonfiction book, I cannot help but like read a sentence and have it send me off on some chan- tangent, and then I have to open Notion and start writing something. Uh, I wrote, I don't even know if I'm going to make this into a video yet. I need to determine whether it's worth it, but I wrote a whole script on one idea from this book while reading. Like I was trying to get my reading done for the day and it just sent me off on a tangent. I had to write it and I ended up writing like 2,500 words. Yeah, that wouldn't help. That wouldn't help. So yeah, it doesn't help me. I also highlight and I take notes and I do all kinds of stuff. So I'm very slow when it comes to reading books. This is part of the reason why I like audiobooks because I actually get through them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I usually pick books that I don't feel like I need to take heavy notes on, or I will actually listen to a book and then go back and get the print version so I can go back and like take notes and learn things more thoroughly. That's probably what I'm going to do for walkable city now that I'm done with that. Um, but yeah, for this one, I think it was, I I saw it on the shelf at Boulder bookstore and I just bought it because it was interesting. That's kind of my criteria for whether I get books as like a Kindle or a physical or audiobook. It's like, did I find it at the bookstore? Was it interesting? And was I already not buying three other books? <laughs> if so, then I'll buy it in print and, you know, just make do. Uh, otherwise, I'll often get the ebook. So, yeah, I took some notes. I have some some thoughts that I want to share from this. And you said you got to where I was? Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Um we didn't give people fair warning on this, so sorry if you haven't read up to page 80 in the book. If you want uh, homework, I don't know how many people listening to this home, this uh, podcast want additional homework given to them, but hey, if you're a glutton for punishment, if you want more homework assigned to you, I'm happy to oblige. Uh, read the rest of the book by, let's see here, we probably won't do the next episode on our next episode. We'll probably do yeah. an in-betweener and then discuss the next section. The one thing is I'm not done reading the book yet, so I'm not sure if we're just going to do it in two or three. But if you want to be sure, then read the book by, I don't know, next month, by May. And then you'll be able to follow along and, I don't know, disagree with us or agree with us or whatever you want. So the, I guess the premise of this book, Martin, is like basically life is like poker and not chess. Which is kind of a counterintuitive idea i think because whenever whenever the idea of like strategy comes into people's minds it's always associated with like chess players and we love talking about like i don't know like that queen's gambit show is on netflix is is super popular right now and everyone thinks of chess when they think of strategy but what she kind of mentions in the book is that like chess is very different than almost any decision you make in real life because in chess all of the information is available to you and to your opponent all of the time like theoretically you can see every move on the board and you could extrapolate every, maybe you couldn't know exactly what your opponent's going to do, but you could model the probability of each move happening and the strength of each move, which is exactly what chess programs do. So it's very different than any decision we make in the real world because almost never do we have pure information, like pure complete information on what we're trying to do. Yeah. Like you just moved to Minneapolis and you didn't know if that was going to be a good decision or not. It was I, like a I risk. couldn't have known. Yeah, I had mm-hmm. I had some ideas, but in and maybe that's why people jump to chess first when they want to think of strategy because it's really comforting to think mm-hmm. strategy is is ultimate 
you can be perfectly smart and there is correct information, but it, moving here yeah. was, in fact, a bit of a gamble. I think that maybe that's why people like to think of chess, because it is a comfortable image of strategy. It sort of like reinforces the notion that if only you knew all the facts, you could make the perfect decision. And yes, you can know all the facts if you just study hard enough and gather as much information as you can. And like part of the reason that a lot of people never dip their toes into poker and why poker is such a challenging game and maybe even more challenging than, than chess is you never have all the information. And I remember like I saw little snippets of world series of poker when I was a kid, it would just be on ESPN at like sports bars or something. And you'd see like some dude who just looks at another guy on the table and they're like, Hmm, okay. You got Jack queen and he's right. So you think that, okay, there must be some way where you can, you can know for sure. But that guy's still taking a guess. He's just using probabilities. Like, okay, you bet this way and I have these cards. You probably have this. And they're just super good at it. But in reality, they're still taking a guess because they have no way of knowing for sure what their opponent has. And in, in poker, you have to make decisions based off of simple probabilities, reading your opponent, and then basically just hoping that you're right. Yeah, it's a lot more uh, honest about the luck component. Mm -hmm. And like, that's kind of how things are in real life. You just have to, you have to get lucky sometimes. And I guess like the, the biggest lesson that I took from the first part of the book is that a lot of people make this huge mistake when it comes to making decisions where they will make a decision, they will see the outcome, and then they believe that the quality of the outcome is 100% correlated to the quality of their decision-making, which in chess it is. If you make a mistake in chess, then you just made a mistake. That was like a bad decision. Yeah, you didn't get or, a bad card draw. It's you, yeah. had, you had the opportunity to do better. Whereas in poker, you can make a decision that is the, the, like, it's, uh, the best probable quality decision that you could possibly make and you could still lose the hand. So I know an example that she gives in the book because she's a Texas Hold'em player is if you get uh, two aces, which I believe are called the nuts in poker, that is mathematically the best hand you can be dealt. So if you don't bet on that hand, like you're making a bad decision because barring any other information uh, and before you know all the three cards are revealed, there is no information, you have the best hand. You know you do. And it's possible somebody else has the same hand, but it is impossible for anyone else at the, ta at the table at the time to have a better hand than you. So you should absolutely bet. Now, how much you should bet, there's a whole lot of strategy there, but you should bet. But even still, even though that is probabilistically the best hand in the game, somebody could win off of the lesser hand. Somebody could still win off of the worst hand in the game, which is a seven and a two unsuited and not in the same suit. Which is actually funny. So the reason, actually, the reason I started uh, reading this book is because I've got uh, a group of YouTuber friends who play poker, and I sometimes join them. Uh, and one of the people in the group actually went all in on a seven and a two unsuited, and ended <laughs> up winning. <laughs> so the funny thing is, like, what people often will do is like they'll be like, okay, the outcome is related to the quality of the decision, whether it's a bad outcome or a good outcome. And if somebody were to say, oh, I went all in on a seven and a two and I won, 
if they were to say, okay, that means going all in on a seven and two is always the best decision, then they're engaging in a fallacy that's called resulting, where you conflate the results of the outcome with the quality of your decision. And in reality, they have actually made a pretty bad decision. It just happened to work out for them because there's luck involved. Yeah, unless they specifically knew that with the people they were playing, they could easily be bluffed. That's like, yeah. it's statistically, that's not a good decision, even if it wins. Mm-hmm. Have you ever played poker? A few times. I don't, uh, it doesn't interest me uh, because of the luck component, actually. So I'm just like, eh, it's a card game, you know? It's, so, okay, I'm, eh. I'm curious about that because I know that you're very interested in a little game called Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering also has flavor. has a luck component. I can write. That's a, true. It does. If have there flavor. wasn't flavor to that, like the new set <laughs> is about this cool magic school, and there's different, uh, different like houses with uh, themes and dual color things. That's there's a Harry Potter magic set now. Essentially, it's coming out soon. It looks cool, but it's okay. That does look cool. That's flavorful, and it that's what draws me in. If it was just, mm. if we played the exact same, if we could have the exact same strategy somehow played on a 52 card regular numbered deck, I wouldn't play that game. Let me challenge you for a second because I would like to know if your version to the luck component in a game like poker, or maybe even the game like magic is due to the fact that you don't like luck or that you're uncomfortable playing around luck. I guess it doesn't feel like I can grow in ways that I want to. It's just, it's boring to me because I don't care about getting good at poker because of the lack of story is the thing. Mm. It doesn't I understand that part. If I get a lucky hand or if I happen to play a little well, I don't actually feel that rewarded by it. I don't care about that kind of strategy. Gotcha. I kind of used to feel the same way. Um, I played, I think the first time I ever played poker was actually one of those, you know, those little tiny game, like handheld game things they would sell at Walmart and Target. They weren't Game Boys. They were just like yeah, one like game. Just one off things. Yeah. Yeah. My mom had one that was poker. And it was like regular five card draw. I don't even remember how it worked, but that's kind of how I learned my poker hands. And then I would occasionally just like play. There was like a video game that I had access to. And I thought it was pure luck. You take your draw and okay, I guess you just choose if you have a good hand or not. And then you, and you bet on it and that's it, which uh, I also thought it was super boring. And I kind of just joined the YouTuber poker game for a while because I wanted to hang out with people. I've been locked in my house for a year. It's just a way to play games with people. Um, but I started looking into it and you know, it's, it still may not be something that interests you, but when you start looking into the strategy behind it, you, you realize that that classic saying like you don't play the game, you play your opponent is true because seeing your hand, that's like, 2% of the information that you actually want to be using when you play the game. What's much more important is understanding like your position at the table relative to the dealer and how your opponents are betting, how they are reacting to the way you bet. Like there's all this observation that you can do during the course of a round to gather information. And then you can, you, you essentially test hypotheses like a scientist does, which is you making bets or folding. And at least in my case, once I started learning that there's strategy beyond just knowing what hand you have and betting on it based on a strength, it started feeling a bit more rewarding for me. Mm. That makes sense. It's just a much, much deeper game than I thought it was 
before I kind of started learning about it. And there's a lot of like reading your opponent and then not allowing yourself be, to be read, all that kind of stuff. It's actually kind of funny because all the movies make reading your opponent look like, you know, you just, you look at their face and see if they have a tell and things like that. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work because we're playing on an app and I can't see their faces. We're just on Discord. But I started realizing like, oh, wait, the way that they bet actually matters. Or if they just like check and try not to put any more money in, but they want to stay in, it probably means they have like not that good of a hand, but they're just hoping that people are going to fold out. So all kinds of interesting little observations I can get. But I guess the the main thing here is that it as a game is more like real life than any game where you have perfect information. And maybe that's why people have so much analysis paralysis analysis paralysis in real life, because like in poker, we have we have incomplete information in most decisions we make in life, and that makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, incredibly uncomfortable. It feels bad to know that luck is involved and that there are things you don't know. Mm-hmm. So the the main lesson I guess that I took from this this part of the book is whenever I make a decision in life, or in poker, or in Magic the Gathering, whatever it is, when I get the outcome, I need to ask myself, okay, is that outcome mostly due to the quality of my decision or was the quality of my decision not related or at least you know loosely related to what happened because luck intervened it could be you know good or bad so like i won a hand of poker did i win it because i was playing well or did i win it because i just got really lucky and other people weren't playing well or you know i made an investment decision did i did i make a lot of money because i'm an investing genius and i did super good research on the company or did I just get really lucky or did I invest at the beginning of like a bubble? Yeah. And I finally like doing that analysis. Oh, go ahead. No, I just, I really like the the whole idea of separating decisions from outcomes just because that's just how we do it. Generally speaking, Mm -hmm. I had, I had a lot of problems reading through the book, trying to think, wait, what, what are my good and bad decisions from the last however long? And it's like, well, let's break down them not based on results. Let's break down the one that you just made, which is moving to a new city. This is actually probably a more relatable decision than playing poker to most people listening to this podcast. A lot of people are either planning on moving somewhere new or want to in the future. And you had already moved to Denver from Iowa. So you had already made a pretty big investment, moved here, and then lived here for four years, made friends, all this kind of stuff. So... The prospect of you moving to a brand new city was actually a pretty big gamble because you would have to pay for moving. You didn't know if you had have to pay double rent because your lease was not up until what was it? June. Yeah. June. And luckily we got somebody in there, but I wasn't sure there was, Mm -hmm. there was definitely the assumption that I would have to just pay the worst. Yeah. And then, and so that would, that could have been what, two months of double rent. Yeah. I think it would have been. Yeah. And then paying for the moving. Uh, and then all the expense of like buying boxes and the lost time that you had from having so to pack time. everything yourself. It's actually kind of funny. There's like a bunch of mini bets in here too. Like you made a bet that you would be happier overall packing yourself instead of hiring movers. Yep. You made a bet overall that you would be happier getting that moving cube that gets shipped out 
rather than getting a U-Haul and driving all your stuff there, even though you wouldn't have all your stuff for a few days once you got into town. Yeah, and I decided to drive myself there instead of getting my car shipped or something. Oh, that's true. You could have flown. Which was a horrible long drive, but I made that decision. Yep. And and you had to make bets about where you were going to live in the city. Yeah, and I couldn't even I, I didn't think, even visit the apartment before I like signed the lease. So, what was the decision-making process like for that? Both for choosing the area and for choosing that apartment kind of sight unseen. Uh, I choose the areas, well, um, Ashley really liked the area. So that was kind of the starting place. And then when I okay. looked up, it had like a great crime rate, great uh, stuff to walk to, all sorts of stuff that I found desirable. So I was just like, that's sort of it. When I'm, same thing happened with moving to Colorado. As soon as I found the first answer where I was like, that seems like a good answer. I stuck to it okay. because I don't feel like doing more research. And I suppose I'm gambling that any more research I do will only confuse me and make me less happy overall than simply sticking to this first decision. It's probably good enough to get my foot in the door. That's fair. I think that does kind of pay off quite a bit of the time. I remember like reading some research a while ago that when people actually commit to a decision that they can't take back, they're happier with it overall. Well, and I figured I can't know. I can't know if that place is the right place. I can't possibly know. So mm-hmm. I just need to go and find out. And that's kind of what we did for Denver too. I mean, we did. I think we did a little bit more research because we had come out and we had toured a few buildings. But for Denver itself, I think we toured two because our yeah. original plan was Boulder, and we realized Boulder was too expensive. And touring two apartment buildings out of all the apartments in the entire city is like basically nothing. It's I don't know. I guess you can choose which one you like out of the both of those but in the grand scheme of things you have no idea if you're getting the best apartment for your needs in the entire city so it was sort of a gamble yours was still more though because you didn't even get to tour it yeah and in order to make that gamble i had to accept that this is actually a brand new place no one had even lived in the apartment i'm in right now before me so that helped me make that mm-hmm. decision Made me feel a lot better about it. It's in brand new condition. It's it's good. I've seen mm-hmm. they had video tours that I could do, stuff like that. But it was, in fact, limited information. But it would have been limited information if I visited anyway because I would have been touring for, you know, like 15 minutes probably. Leave. Probably touring one of those, uh, what do they call it, like a show apartment? Yeah, and then relying so on memory the entirely afterward. Get. Well, I always take video whenever I tour a house or apartment. Well, I don't because I don't, I don't do like relying on memory to have that strategy built up. That's fair. I, when we were touring houses, looking to buy a house, I was I recorded every. Well, if you're inch. buying a house, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I guess I, I the take the decision one, a little less seriously when I'm just renting an apartment. That's true. And hey, that's actually another gamble: renting instead of buying, because it's like a brand new city. You don't know if you're going to like it. You don't know if you're going to like the area. There's so many unknowns that renting is a good idea of like a risk mitigation strategy because if you lose out the cost is one year of rent or whatever the lease term you signed was and i guess whatever you spent to move yeah what if i buy a house i come here and i immediately hate it that would be that that's a way bigger gamble that i wasn't Mm -hmm. willing to make 
Hey, let's take a quick break and pay some bills. This week's episode of our show is brought to you by our good friends over at Brilliant, which is a fantastic learning platform for anybody who wants to improve their skills and their mastery in the areas of math, science, and computer science. And what I love about Brilliant is that rather than teaching you these topics with textbooks, long walls of text, or even videos, they teach you through active problem solving from the get-go. You get little bits of text that you just have to learn from, and then you get immediately thrown into these logically sequenced bite-sized problems that keep you actively learning the entire time. And when you learn actively, you learn a lot more effectively. So within Brilliant's library of courses, you're going to find a ton of different options. There is a full math suite ranging from the basics of number theory and mathematics all the way up into very complex areas of like calculus and derivatives and things that I honestly don't understand. They've got science classes. They have computer science classes like Python programming, search engines, all kinds of cool stuff. And one that I do want to shout out this week, since we are talking about thinking in bets, is their class on applied probability. Not only will this class teach you the basics of probability and how to actually figure out probabilities, but it also helps you apply it to real world situations, ranging from sports to economics and money to all kinds of other areas. So if you want to start thinking a little bit more probabilistically, if you want to think a little bit less irrationally and more logically, this would be a great class to take. And it would be a great addition to reading the book, Thinking and bets, which we talked about in this episode. And whether you want to take that class or any of the others in their library, you can get started by going over to brilliant.org slash Inforium. And in fact, if you're one of the first 200 people to use the link and sign up, you're going to get 20% off their annual premium subscription, which gets you access to all of those courses. So once again, brilliant.org slash Inforium. And thanks as always to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode and being a big supporter of our show. Let's get back into it. There's actually kind of a example of that in the book. Did you get to the the, oh, the, the part Moines about Des Moines? Thing? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah this is particularly I was like, hey, amazing to me place. because I'm from Des Moines. <laughs> but in in the book, she talks about this famous gambler. I forget his name, um, but he's like a you know a super famous gambler in in Las Vegas, and like he basically lives and breathes gambling. And so his friends at one point wanted to feel wanted to figure out like, okay, can we design a bet that will get him to drop everything and move to Des Moines, Iowa right now and spend, I think it was 30, was it 30 or 60 days? It was like a month, I thought. I think, yeah, it was a month in Des Moines. Can you last a month in Des Moines? I think the terms were, if you can last a month in Des Moines, we will pay you 30 grand. Yeah. If you can't, you pay us 30 grand. So yeah, just, can you detach yourself from the world of gambling for that long? Yeah. And she broke down that bet pretty well in the book because at first glance, you would think, okay, well, the only terms are I either lose 30K or I gain 30K, and all I have to do is live in Des Moines for a month. Like, seems easy. But she actually brought up the point that if he were to move to Des Moines, he's losing out on all the potential money he could make gambling over that those 30 days. If it's a professional gambler, he's probably pretty good at coming out ahead, usually. But he's also losing out on the potential opportunity to lose big during those 30 days. So that's like a whole consideration to make. Um, and I think she had also brought in factors like, are there things he could bet on in Des Moines, which being from Des Moines, I happen to know you could go to Altoona and you could go to the Meskwaki casino and bet on the horses there or play poker or whatever. Though I think they had said like he wasn't allowed to gamble. Oh yeah. They had upped it at one point where he had to stay on like one street too, or something ridiculous. That's and what he was, it was limited to, he had to stay on grand, 
which again, I know exactly where that is. And if I had to spend an entire month only on grand, I would get pretty bored pretty fast. Uh, so I think he was like, all right, I'll do it as long as I can golf. Yeah. There was a golf course. Cause he wanted to like have fun playing golf. And then I guess he was like, well, I could also make bets on golf with people. And you know, that would scratch the gambling itch. And the funny thing is he moved out there and then, uh, he realized almost immediately like, whoops, made the wrong decision. This place is boring and has no nightlife. There's no gambling. I need high stakes gambling to live. It's like an yeah, IV that's, uh, that's healthy. that keeps me alive. <laughs> so I think what it was is, what was it? He called and he basically settled like they do out of court for court cases. And I think he paid them 15K to be able to come back early. Well, first he tried to ask, say that they should pay him 15K. Yep. <laughs> but then like they didn't do it. And in, in like another day he folded. <laughs> it was just like, I can't settle the exact opposite that, direction. That's what it was. He called him up and he, he basically bluffed and he's like, all right, I can, I can make this, I can make this whole 30 days, but how about you guys give me 15 K to basically like bribe me not to stay the whole time and make you guys lose 30 K and I'll come back. And they're yeah. like, mm, nah, sounds like you hate it. <laughs> sounds like you hate it. We're not going to take that. And then he's like, okay, how about I give you guys 15K and I yeah. get to go back. <laughs> what a beautiful reversal. <laughs> but like the, she pointed out that uh, that vet, it was, it was made in explicit terms. There was an actual dollar amount on the winning and losing side. But other than that, it wasn't that different than the bets people make when they choose to like take a new job in a new city or not. Now the bet that you made is a little bit different because you're keeping the same job. So, yeah. and that, that helps, that helps the information I keep. Yeah. You're kind of guaranteed to know like what the economic outcome is, is likely to be because you know how much the apartment costs, you know, being from the Midwest, that the Midwest is generally cheaper than Denver in most ways. And your income isn't changing. Yeah. Your job isn't changing. Uh, well, actually, your job is changing, but it's still with me. That's true. But I also didn't know that. <laughs> we have a whole meeting about this afterwards. And it also doesn't mean anything uh, yeah, when and, talking and about your move. So that is kind of like a much easier decision for you. But when people are like, okay, I have a job you know, in the city where I currently live and I'm making, let's just say you're making like $55,000 a year uh, and you're living in Des Moines, so it's cheap. And you get an offer in Boston to go make 70K a year that is a similar type of bet because you're like, okay, I can move out to this brand new city and, and I'm doing it because I know I'm going to get a financial payoff with a job, but there are downsides that you have to, that you have to consider as well. It's a higher cost of living. Are you going to like living out there? Is it actually going to cost you more at the end of the day with the, the place you have to buy to live with a potential commute, like all kinds of stuff that you have to try to factor in. And at the end of the day, you don't know every piece of information. So it is a bet. Yeah, and plenty of people move out somewhere from their home area, get homesick, and come back. Mm -hmm. Either either because they just really didn't like it or because they couldn't stay there long enough to get comfortable. And now you've got twice the moving expenses, all based on that original bet that it was a good idea to try. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, one other thing that she mentioned early in the book is that a lot of times the best quality decision has a low likelihood of actually paying off. But that doesn't mean that it's not worth trying it. So great example, going back to the job question. There are a lot of jobs out there that are super desirable, which means that there's a ton of competition. 
And that means that if you apply to it, your likelihood of success in getting that job is pretty low. But if you get the job, the payoff is incredibly high value. And on the flip side, the amount that you're going to lose if you lose the bet is pretty low. It's just the time that you take to apply for the job. And I guess there's the opportunity cost. You could have done something else. Yeah. But it's not like if you don't get the job, you have to pay that company all the money you would make at that job. It's, you know, it's not like a one-to-one bet. No, that would be ridiculous. So in many cases, it's worth taking on a bet where you have a low likelihood of success because there's no other better option. Um, this is especially like starkly shown in poker. No matter what hand you have, if you're at a table with eight different people, your probability of winning a hand is never more than 50%. It's usually pretty low. And it's actually kind of interesting because like with computer science, poker is becoming less and less of a luck-based game and more and more like probabilities and known quantity game. There's like all these mathematical Hmm. tools that I don't quite understand, but um, at the simplest level, you can go and look up like probability tables for different starting hands in Texas Hold'em and see like what percentage of the time do they win and it, you know, it's never more than 50%. Even if you're dealt the two aces, you can't say that I'm likely to win, which would be to say that I'm more than 50% likely to win, because you're not. But it's still worth making the bet, because you are more likely to win with that hand than any other, given no other additional information. Yeah, she mentioned somewhere in the book that even like super expert players expect to lose at least 40% of the time. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, at, at to, least that's just the that's just the floor. Probably gonna lose almost almost half the time, even if you're a professional. What are you gonna do? Yeah, like the the real game in poker is not winning individual hands. It's um, playing a lot of hands, and when you get a hand that is likely to win, convincing your opponents to bet big against you, so that when you do win, you win a lot. And it yeah. outpaces the amount that you lose when you're losing most hands. Uh, the nice thing about the poker game that I play is it's just like on an app with friends, which means there's no rake. Uh, and the rake is basically like a percentage of the pot that the dealer takes in Vegas. If you've watched the movie Molly's Game, you will know that it is illegal to take a rake unless you are a licensed casino. So when I play the game with my friends, the only time I ever have to bet is if I'm in two positions, which are called the small blind and the big blind, where you have to put in uh, either half of like the minimum or the full minimum, and that's it. Otherwise, you could just fold and fold and fold and fold and just sit there and be boring. Um, in that case, my friends will start calling you boring. But you could, which is nice. Professional poker players have to not only come out ahead with the hands that they uh, win occasionally, they have to beat the rake. Every single hand they play, they're giving up a certain dollar amount based on what the minimum is for the game. So that's kind of the real game of poker. It's like, can you identify when you are likely to win and can you both bet big and convince your opponents to also bet big instead of getting scared and folding out? And that's kind of how you win that game. Yeah, and you got to do it in like 14 seconds. That's true. You like, have very little time to play. It, it's high pressure, low information, high, low time. There's, there's just, it's a very stressful and honest way of showing you what decision making is really like. Whereas in regular yeah. life, we tend to romanticize it. Like, of course, it was the right thing for me to move to Minnesota. 
because of mm-hmm. all of these reasons. And and I definitely thought it was the right decision or I, or I wouldn't have come here, but th- there was a lot of uncertainty. What if I just came yeah. here and uh, it turns out the problem is me and I'm unhappy because of me. And then this was just an added expense and it made everything worse. It could have happened. I think we've even mentioned that before. Like a lot of times the, the issue isn't where you are because no matter where you go, you're with yourself. Yeah. So that was probably a very significant factor that you had to wrangle with. Yeah, it's a difficult to know that. How can you know until you've tried it? But mm-hmm. we, we try to romanticize things and take a lot of the insecurity out of our own decisions just because I think it makes us feel better. It definitely makes us feel better, both in justifying our decisions when things go well and in kind of like wringing our hands when it goes wrong which we often do that thing where when it goes wrong, we blame external factors. And when it goes right, we congratulate ourselves and yeah. not external factors. Like with investing, when people make a good investment, they're usually like, I made such a good decision. I was such a good strategist. And when they lose money, they're like, ah, the market's just bad right now. Bad timing. Just bad luck, you know? What are you going to do? <laughs> How did I know that Elon Musk was just going to tweet something that made all my short positions go bust? Man, you probably should have known that. Because Elon Musk tweets things all the time. (laughs) But yeah, if if you have that mindset in poker that, oh, uh, the decision I made, like this outcome was purely because of the decision I made, then you're going to lose pretty quickly in the long term. If you're going to be a good poker player, you have to learn to separate the quality of your decisions with the quality of your outcomes. And that is uh, the same in many other areas of life. Investing, job hunting, all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of like the main thing to learn here is learn to separate these two things. Uh, now, I would guess that this next thing I want to talk about is going to be more discussed later on in the book. But before we get into what she says about it, um, I'd like to talk about like, can we develop a sort of framework or set of rules for how much information that we need before making a decision? And maybe we can use like your move as another exa- as an example here again. What what are the things we need to be sure about before we make a decision, and how do we know like, what those things are? Well, because I'm guessing there are some things that you need. You to know. That's true. How much time you have is a very important factor. Uh, in the case of moving, like you had quite a bit of time. If you had been offered a different job out there that you really wanted, it would have been a bit more of a time crunch, most likely. Yeah. So I guess that's that's part one, is how much time do you have to make the decision and how much can you learn in that amount of time? If you're offered a job and they're like, we need your answer by Monday and it's in a different city, you probably don't have a whole lot of time to go out and visit that city to see- yeah, like, You can't, you can't go live in that city for a week to test it out. You have yeah. a few days. Then I guess you could just fly out there and and you know just try to soak in the city as much as you can in two days before making that choice which honestly that's probably what i would do if i was in that situation i don't think i would go sight unseen but hey you know you know i I could i could very easily identify a situation where you might do that anyway say uh you're my brother wanting to break into the music industry and jay-z calls you up and he's like i want you to be my assistant for the next six months will you do it come to New York. I think he lives in New York. I don't think my brother has ever been to New York city, but I still think he would take that deal. 
And I don't think he would need to fly to New York City and check out the sites to be able to decide. I think he would do it and he would go and he would just learn how to make it work. Yeah, yeah, because the potential prize is more important than all of the potential downsides. Yeah, so I think that's that's probably the number one thing you have to ask yourself. What is the potential prize, the good outcome, and what are the potential downsides? Uh, and then when thinking about the downsides, ask yourself, like, how how would my life be affected if I were to uh, choose wrong and I, and I get the downsides, not the upsides. Yeah. If I I lose the bet, what happens? I try to think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Like what's the, can I be prepared for the worst case scenario? Because if I want to, if I want to guess safely, I should just guess conservatively here. What's me not getting what I want going to feel like. Is that Mm -hmm. way worse than the downsides I potentially face here? And I feel like my downsides when I was looking at moving were maybe the move's too expensive and I'm a little bit broke for a bit. I uh, cut my square footage like in half. Maybe that annoys me at some point. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't have any improvement in my mental health or happiness or anything. And maybe I don't get the reinvigoration of my desire to go take photos and things with a brand new environment to go do so in. But none of those to me were that scary mm-hmm. compared to, to me, my, my greatest fear, like, I don't know why I've been so, uh, it feels like dramatic about this since a young age, but I would always be like, my, my fear is settling. That's my mm. main fear is that I choose to do nothing out of comfort rather than go try something, which yeah. is, so that that's a heavy cost to me. Having just turned 30, I was like, well, this is, it's a like a big new stage of my life potentially. And obviously the stages are arbitrarily drawn, but I choose to care about that line. And the cost was going to be renewing for probably another year at least. So do I want to take a chance? Or do I want to spend another year thinking, should I have taken that chance? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, that, that cost was too great to me, essentially. So any downsides yeah. I could see about coming here were more doable than the downsides. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed is at least one of those downsides that you mentioned was a downside you were already experiencing. When you said, you know, if I move out here, what if I continue to be unhappy in general? Yeah. And like, that's a, that's like neutral. It just means you're I already yeah. benefit. So you, I guess you, you had to go through the expenditure of moving. So that's a downside that could be considered a loss on the bet. And I guess you could say like, okay, well, I've, I've experienced more time unhappy than I wanted to, but because you were already unhappy where you lived, going out there and if you were unhappy that is not really a big loss no so i guess that would be an example of an acceptable loss that would help you make the decision yeah and And, i think or yeah go ahead um i think something that's helpful about this is that though i had a lot of things that i find inconvenient happen to me in colorado i don't think it was a bad decision to go to Colorado. Mm-hmm. It was a great decision. I just got unlucky afterward. I, yeah. I still agree with that decision. It was the correct way to get me out of my comfort zone before I settled too far into adult life to want to change anything and try new things. 
and it helped me grow a lot even if there were a lot of things i didn't like that happened afterward that's it was a good decision and that helped me think mm-hmm. i probably won't regret this yeah yeah there's there's a lot that you learn coming out here even if it's not the right place for you to live and even if you spend time in a place where you're not happy you do learn a lot so there's yeah, like, something gained no matter what i guess worst case scenario i learn a bunch about mm-hmm. what makes me work and uh i don't know it's a year the lease is a year you know it's so i guess i feel tortured for a year and i could move back if i wanted so i just lose the moving expenses in that case yeah but i gain so information I guess- regardless that's always a prize and I, so I guess in this decision, there are a lot of known known factors which help you out. You know how much the lease costs. You know that your level of income is staying the same. So you're roughly sure about the financial implications of this decision. Uh, and I guess in your case, they're actually positive because you're paying less in rent than you yeah. were. So really all you need to do is be there long enough to offset how much it costs to move. Which yeah. I would guess is like what one one month's worth of rent, if that. I don't know. I haven't moved I'm across not, the country in a while. I'm not sure. I didn't. I did. Yeah. I there were so many moving expenses that at some point I was just like, you know what? <laughs> I don't care. I don't really it's have probably, a choice at this point. I'm all in. I will just. I have to pay those numbers, and I'll yeah. figure it out later. It's not like I can say actually I've decided not to move halfway through. There's a there's a point of no return. You're on you're on the highway. <laughs> the crate is already shipped. Yeah, I've decided <laughs> I don't want to pay nah. for any more gas. So nah, that's I'm not true. filling up expensive. the tank again. I'm going back. Oh, wait, I'm not going sunk back, Sunk cost I guess. fallacy, Martin. Yeah. You can't fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy. You, just because you already bought that gas, just because you already shipped off all your personal belongings, doesn't mean you should buy the next tank of gas. And that's true. It doesn't In mean this that. Case, it, it probably but, does mean but that. But <laughs> the, the outcomes of my potential, potential options there do mean that. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, those those are the known quantities, and I guess the the unknown information is will I like it? Which, in the grand scheme of things, given the potential downsides, which are just I guess I'm there for a year, or I break my lease and and pay the fine, those are low enough to accept that unknown information and take that bet. Yeah. Um. I was thinking about decisions where the potential downside is very high. So a great one that I have to face every single time I get on my motorcycle is I could die That's on this true. motorcycle. That it is a huge potential downside on that bet. I call that a negative. And that's, it's a pretty negative thing. Uh, and yet I still ride a motorcycle. So either I'm a complete idiot or... I have decided the potential upsides are worth the risk of the downside, which is defined not just by the potential uh, downside itself, but the likelihood of that downside. And one thing that you have to consider when you're looking at the potential downsides of a bet and the potential upsides of the bet, but especially the downsides, is can I get the same upside that I'm aiming for here while mitigating against this really bad downside? So when I thought about getting my motorcycle license, when I thought about starting to ride, I was very aware of the dangers of riding. And I've become even more aware since taking my motorcycle safety class. Um, And I don't remember the exact statistics off the top of my head, but I think it's like you're 27 times more likely to die on a motorcycle than you are uh, driving a car. 
So that sounds like a pretty bad bet right away. But then you start learning about the factors that go into many motorcycle crashes. The majority of motorcycle crashes do not involve anything other than the motorcycle because the rider went off the road and it's usually because they went wide in a turn. So the way to mitigate against that is to do a lot of practice and to learn how to properly counter steer and to learn how to trust uh, proper riding technique when you feel a little uncomfortable. A lot of people will get into a turn on a motorcycle, they're going a little bit too fast and they will grab a fistful of brake in the middle of the turn. And that's exactly how you lose traction. Or they, will realize, or they won't realize that you need to lean over more to tighten your turn. So if you want to drastically decrease your likelihood of getting into a motorcycle crash, and this isn't me advocating motorcycle ridership, I do it myself. I do not say anyone else should do it. That's a decision for you to make. But if you're going to do it, go and take a motorcycle safety cl a class that drills counter steering very, very well. And ideally refresh and go take that course again maybe every couple of years just so you don't get rusty and you don't get overconfident so that's one factor uh, i believe i read somewhere that half of motorcycle crashes involve alcohol and i believe it knowing nice. certain people uh, in my family extended family and people they know who uh have a certain culture where they like to use the, their motorcycles to drive to bars on the weekend <sighs> i don't do that so that is another huge factor cut out of there. Um, and then a lot of people, they die on motorcycles because they don't wear helmets, they don't wear gear. So when I ride, I have, a, I have a helmet. It is not only DOT certified, but it's also certified to the higher standard. I forget the name of it, but it's like some European standard. And I have full gear, armored jeans, motorcycle boots, all the stuff. You, you got the Captain America stuff on. And I don't ride like on. an idiot. Yes, I have all the Captain America stuff on minus the Captain America helmet because I don't think that would actually be a very good motorcycle helmet in a crash. No, probably not. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't have eye protection for one. Uh, I don't think it has good cushioning. It's not even a hard outer shell. It's more just like a weird rubber head cap thing. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you only had to make slight alterations to your bet to make the, the stuff worth yep. it. You're just betting do the safety benefits of the, this outfit and this helmet outweigh the negatives of like, oh, I have a helmet and I didn't want to wear one. God, yeah. this is uncomfortable. And the answer is uh, yes, uh, obviously, in my opinion. But I'll but take the bet. Some people that clearly be, don't take that bet. They don't. Yeah, I will take the bet that I'm going to be a little bit happier in the or a little unhappier wearing the helmet, which is frankly not super comfortable. Yeah. Because uh, I don't want to die. That seems like a good yeah, bet. Yeah, you're to me. you're just betting you'll be happier if you're alive but had to wear a helmet. Yep. That's a, I yeah, think when, that's when a considering bet. like, what is the upside that I'm after here? I enjoy riding a motorcycle, especially, oh, you got sirens. You're in the, yeah. you're in the city. It's true. It's I can't make thing. them stop. I don't have the authority to do that. And I think they're probably doing something. They're probably going to go save someone's life. So, you know, I probably I shouldn't stop that. We can take the sirens it's, and podcast. Okay, ambulance. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, what was I saying? Uh, the, the upside that I want is that I enjoy the experience of riding a motorcycle, especially when I get up into the twisty roads in the mountains. It is wonderful. Uh, the other nice thing is that as long as you're a confident rider and you know how to counter steer well, those twisty roads are often safer because there are fewer intersections and fewer cars, which is pretty nice. Mm -hmm. um, can I get that experience while wearing a helmet 
while abstaining from alcohol and while uh you know having put in a, a little bit of work to go to a class and practice and work up within my comfort level yes i can so i should absolutely do those things because they mitigate against a potential downside that even if it is if it's rare or you know unlikely relatively it's really really bad if it happens yeah now i would say that eight out of ten people listening to this podcast would not take that bet and they still wouldn't get on a motorcycle and that's totally fine and i think it's a you know it, that's a personal decision you should absolutely go with what you're comfortable with um but this this type of thinking how can i mitigate against a potential bad downside is important to keep in mind because if we don't think this way and we just go oh that downside there is terrible i should just not do this then we become too afraid to do like anything Walking well, out your front door has a potential bad downside or many potential bad downsides. You can get hit by a bus or something, but yeah. it's, it's not very likely. And there's a lot you can do to mitigate against that. Such as, I don't know, not crossing the street while looking at your phone, having headphones in, like I saw like eight different people do today. Yeah. Or like, what if you're <laughs> driving in winter, you know, there's a risk there. And mm -hmm. to mitigate that every mile per hour, you go slower it makes you a little safer until eventually you realize that going slower might put you in more danger or make it so annoying to get there that it's not even worth it. And so you do, in fact, pick the appropriate bet level. It's just that we don't think about that. Yep. Yeah, if you're going 30 miles an hour on a snowy road, you're making a different bet than somebody going 40. Yeah, you, you have, in fact, 10. chosen the perfect level of of risk that you are willing to do. You just maybe haven't thought it through all the way, or maybe you have, but you are making the bets mm -hmm. whether you're comfortable with them or not. Yeah. So I think that that's why this book has fascinated me so much. It just sort of makes it very clear that every decision we make every single day is a bet. There is potential upside, potential downside. And almost every single time we make a bet, we have information that is unavailable to us. We have to make that decision without that information there. And that I think that leads to a couple of different lessons. First being become comfortable with a lack of information. This doesn't mean that you should just make every single choice based on your gut feeling. If you can go get that information, then you absolutely should. You know, that's why we go to school. That's why we do research. We should do those things. But at a certain point, there's either information that we just can't get because it's like a game of poker and you're never going to learn what your opponent's hand is unless you, I don't know, punch them and look at their cards. But That's a different bet. That's a different type of bet. Uh, or you maybe could get that, get that information, but the time it would take you to get it all would put you past the point where you could make the decision. Or maybe even, or maybe the optimal point. Like if you're in high school and you're going to go to college, at some point you have to decide what college am I going to? And you could technically embark on a 30-year research study to find definitively what the best college is. But then you're 48 years old going to college instead of 18. So at a certain point, it's like, okay, you have some amount of information. You could keep looking, but there's a window of opportunity here for getting the, the best benefit from it. Make a decision with what you know now. Yeah. And, and then live with it, you know? Uh, and then the other thing is what are the things you could do to mitigate 
the potential downsides that still get you the same or a very similar upside. So, you know, me on the motorcycle with my gear is like 99% as enjoyable as me on my motorcycle without the gear. Maybe even more because bugs aren't flying in my mouth. Oh, well, that's actually, that's a good benefit. That's really necessary. It's a pretty good benefit. Also your eye, maybe. And yes, I don't, I do like not having bugs in my eye while I am using that eye to make yeah. sure that I don't run to a car. Yeah, particularly stinging eyes or stinging mm-hmm. bugs. Yeah. And I, I do want to reiterate that my my use of the motorcycle example is not me selling, like saying, go go get a motorcycle because it is dangerous. Uh, and I, I personally accept the risk using the mitigating factors and decisions that I have taken, but it's not me. We got Thomas Danger Frank it. over here. <laughs> Well, this is like this, this is something that I'm really considerate of now because I took my good friend Martin mountain biking once and it wasn't a good bet for you. Yeah, that that did have a bad result. I will say the part of me that did it because I didn't want to allow fear to keep me from trying new things. I still think that that was a a good idea. It would have been nice to mitigate that however, by trying yes. non-downhill first so that I even knew what that bike felt like. And yep. uh, that would have been, there would have, there could have been things I could have done to mitigate it. Yes. I'm glad I wasn't just risk averse to the point of not doing anything, but I should have been well, a little that, more risk averse, just a little bit more. And I think that's a good analysis of that outcome because somebody could very easily say, oh, I'm never doing anything like fast or risky ever like that again. I should never, ever, you know, they become afraid because something bad happened once. And I think the way you have an, you've analyzed it is good. You know, I should still push myself out of my comfort zone. I should still face my fears. Maybe getting on a mountain bike and going down a mountain without ever having done mountain biking before, maybe that was the decision I shouldn't repeat. Yeah, the decision was that I, I should have thought to myself, maybe I should get to know this tool first before I have to suddenly mm-hmm. use it on high pressure. But it gave me information too. What are you going to do? Because my, my information going in was, oh, well, you've longboarded down big hills with me before and you ride a bike yeah. a lot. This yeah, should I'm be easy. generally decent at that stuff. Not that day. <laughs> and also, Not that day. We're going on, and also we're going on green trails. So it shouldn't be. It and now I have, I have new that. information. How dare they? Which is that <laughs> Spirit Mountain in Minnesota their green trails are they're not green they're blues they have tight they, berms they got me good i think go it was right a prank rollers. i think it was just a prank they got me real good <laughs> yeah i would not call them greens i would call them blues it was a blues. pretty sick they, snap they your fingertip and half prank yeah so i know that and i also know that even if you have like experience with fast longboarding and you've ridden a bike a lot that doesn't necessarily mean you have the the requisite skills for mountain biking and bike control around berms and stuff like that. So at this yeah. point, like if anyone's like, Hey, I want to go downhill with you. I'm like, okay, cool. We're going to go to the little bike park in Denver first. And I'm going to put you on the pump track where you're going five miles an hour and you're going to go around yeah. berms and learn like all this stuff because yeah. You know, so I've gained information on that too. Um, Anyway, I, I think that's a pretty good breakdown of the first part of the book and the lessons we took from it, unless you have anything. No, I mean, like I think add. that's it's more just like about getting to re-examine the decisions we make this first part. And I imagine it's about to get into what do we do with this information now? But mm-hmm. at first, I think it's 
really useful to look back and be like, okay, that didn't end up well. Do I agree with the decision-making that led me there? Or that went really well. Was that smart? Like, I went to community college because I kind of just didn't make any college decisions. And I was like, oh, hey, my friend's doing... I'm just going to do that. What major did you pick? I'll just do that. That was a poorly <laughs> strategized decision. It paid off. I'm glad that it did, but yep. I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. That was pretty ridiculous of me at the time. So yeah, good things fair. can come from bad decisions sometimes. I should have thought that one through more. And mm -hmm. now I might be more mindful with future decisions. Yep. That's actually a good thing to keep in mind for anybody who's making a college decision. It's a bet. And it's a pretty expensive bet. Yeah. And, you know, like majoring in philosophy and going to a private university and taking on private student loans is kind of like going all in you with a seven and a two. Well, I wanted to major in maybe French Maybe it first. works out. That was probably, I realized that strategy wasn't maybe the best because as soon as I got there before class started, I mitigated the risk of not finding a good job by majoring in MIS instead and then using that to fund my ability to study French. I immediately yep. was like, hey, I have a better decision I can make now that I'm here. Mm -hmm. Done. But the first decision, perhaps there wasn't that financially reasonable to say, I don't care about loans. I want to do what makes me happy. It was reasonable that I mitigated it afterward, though. You essentially decided to fold in the middle of a poker hand. Strategically. Yeah, I decided, wait a second. What does a French major get me that speaking French doesn't that will pay for these mm -hmm. loans? I didn't know the answer yeah. fast enough and classes were starting soon. So Yep. That's actually another do computers because um, they pay me better. That that's one more thing that we should probably note here. Be willing to eat sunk costs and pivot if you realize halfway through I've made a bad bet. That's it's something you learn really fast in poker. Maybe you got double aces, so okay, you throw in like 10 bucks into the pot and then four cards come out and none of them are aces you're probably going to lose that hand so yeah it's, yeah, not, it's made a totally bet. reasonable to back out and change it it's absolutely reasonable because if you're like okay i'm, I'm like 98 percent likely to lose and the guy across the table has gone all in do i go go all in no i'm just going to let my ten dollars be sunk cost that's fine yeah if i didn't change you know? majors fast enough my whole first semester would have had different prereqs, and I would have mm -hmm. costed myself that time. Yep. I made a very similar bet, not quite to the same level. I didn't like leave my major, but I dropped out of the honors program during my senior year because there were all these prerequisite things I would have to do. There was like a big project I was going to have to spend a bunch of time on, and I would have to take these extra classes. And I realized, well, College Info Geek is kind of taken off. It's starting to make money. And I can't invest time into this building this website if I'm doing all these little honors class things. And what am I gonna, what am I going to get out of that? I'm going to get a gold cord that I get to wear around my neck at graduation, and I'm going to get to put honors student on my resume. That's it. Well, if what I want to do is become a full time content creator and run my own business, neither of those things matter. Yeah, they literally do not matter. I have not had to put my resume into anyone else's hand for over ten years. And I hope to never have to do that again. So honor student being on there. Well, at this point, I'm almost 30 years old. I don't think anyone would care anyway. Yeah, yeah. At some point, it becomes <laughs> old news. 
<laughs> maybe it would have mattered a little bit if I was like trying to get into grad school at if 22 years old. If it gets you a, old, a good like foot in the door in the beginning stages, could be worth it. But in your case, mm-hmm. the door was already opening. So you didn't And need- I think, you know what? Even if I was trying to go down a more traditional path, I here's a bet I would make now. On a grad school application, I think being able to tell a story about how I built a successful blog that became a you know full-time income side project and brought in hundreds of thousands of visitors would have been more interesting to a committee than, hey, oh, I was an honor student. I did some extra prescribed work. Yeah, you know, that's luckily, still impressive, but you were already something, getting good information. Something different, something novel, something that takes a bit more luck. That's that's more interesting, I think. So that's a bet I would make. Um, again, not prescribing that to anyone else, but I would have made it. All right, uh, we have some cult member questions that we're gonna quickly go through before we hop into a meeting with our head writer. So, uh, if you have not yet received your standard issue Inforium hooded robes. I'm sorry. They're all lost in the mail. Blame the Suez Canal. We're low on time. Let's talk about the robes. That's what Tom's (laughs) instinct is. That's what I do. Uh, But if you have questions, uh, we answer them every week on the podcast, every other week on the podcast. And you can put them in the comment section of the YouTube versions of this podcast or tweet them to us over at Tom Frankly or Yo Martholomew. Yo Martholomew. And the first one we have is, how can I understand what other people say without getting into a heated argument? Well, that's it's a, a, it's a good thing to not want to do. So that's a question that could become a whole episode. It probably could uh, at some point. All right, all right. How about instead of trying to give a comprehensive answer on this one, I give one tip and you give one tip for not okay. becoming heated or defensive okay. when challenged on your views. I'll let you go. All right. Uh, I have used this personally because uh, OCD anxiety spirals can make me get pretty irritated about some stupid things pretty quick. Um The best thing that I can do to handle that so that a conversation doesn't become an argument unnecessarily or things spiral out of control is to just say, wait, honestly, I'm starting to feel irritated. Um, If you could, if you could just give me, give me a minute here, I'm going to try to pull back and then we could resume like the, the humility involved to say, I'm starting to lose control of my feelings and that's showing weakness, but I would really like to not, uh, get into a weird argument, which is more dangerous and damaging than me showing weakness for three seconds. Let, please let me calm down so we can continue. And that, that works well. It just requires, you know, the, that humility. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good tip. Uh, one that I often keep in mind when I have a disagreement with Anna or anyone else is what, what do I want our, our relationship to look like an hour from now? And the answer to that is inevitably, I want it to be a stronger relationship. I want us to learn from each other and I want us to still be friends or in the case of me and Anna, still be together and have a better relationship. And uh, the obvious conclusion when you ask yourself, you know, that question is, okay, if I want us to be better off at the end of this, then any sort of like prideful remark that I would make to score points in this interaction hurts that outcome. And that's not always, you know, it's not always enough to overcome the emotions, but sometimes it is. Yeah, as long as you're not just like, in an hour, I'd like to be doing a victory dance. In two hours, I'd like it to be better. (laughs) (laughs) A victory dance atop your grave. (laughs) Yeah, that that makes Um, a lot of sense because you got to pull back from the moment to picture that. Yeah. 
And I, and you know what? Mentally pulling back from the moment actually does help the emotions to subside a bit. A lot of times I'll catch myself, uh, I'll ask myself that question. I'm like, okay, I feel defensive right now. And it's making me want to say this thing really bad, but I shouldn't say it because it, it's just because I'm defensive or because I want to feel like what I've been saying the past five minutes is right. Even though I'm starting to realize maybe it's not right. Uh, okay, cult member question number two. Uh, and this one seems a little bit more, I don't know, tangible. Yeah, this, this one's right to you too. I'm looking into biking as a method of commuting. However, my old Walmart bike is not cutting it. I'm looking into an e-bike. Would you recommend yours? I think they're meaning my bike that yeah. I bought. Yeah. Uh, probably not. The bike I bought is really expensive. And the reason that I bought an expensive e-bike is I live really far from downtown, like really far, more than 20 miles. And uh, as I, as you could probably gather from me talking about being a motorcycle rider early, I have a lot of confidence on two wheel vehicles and like to go fast. So the e-bike that I bought, it's not a road bike. It is a commuter style bike. So it is a little bit more of an upright seating position because I do care more about comfort than speed with this thing. But it's a class three that can go up to 28 miles an hour using the assistance. Uh, though you do have to pedal the whole time. There's no throttle. And it's like got higher end components and everything. And it has a big battery. So it, it allows me to go fast. It allows me a whole lot of stuff and allows me to get downtown and back reliably on that battery, which is nice. But if you're just looking to get into e-biking or you're not sure about it, the first thing I would say is go and rent one. See if it adds enough value to your life to warrant the extra cost over a regular bike. Because how much was your townie bike? Um, four or 500, I think. Okay. And, and it's pretty comfortable. And then they do make an e-bike townie, but isn't it like that's 1500? like 1500 minimum? And you got a question: Are there enough hills in my town or on my commute to justify the mm -hmm. e-bike? Because like a regular bike has worked for, you know, yep. year, years uncountable, almost. If you have like less than five miles to go, I really don't think an e-bike makes that much sense. Unless you're, I don't know, in the middle of Seattle and you're biking up huge. Yeah, hills. if you're if you're biking up huge hills, then yeah, but. So what I, what I would say is, okay, if, if, you're, if you're using a crappy Walmart bike, the investment and upgrades I would make is probably not immediate jump to e-bike. It would be a jump to a better bike. So a lighter bike, better components, maybe a rear rack so you don't have a backpack on the whole time. There yeah. are some investments you can make that are way, way lower in cost. The biggest cost on an e-bike is the battery. Well, and the speed the of my regular bike versus like a Walmart Target, some sort of bike like that, it it's so much faster and smoother mm -hmm. just because of the build. It is a massive yep. improvement without more effort yeah. on my part. If you have if you have shocks on on your front fork, then you're losing energy. If you're riding full suspension, you're losing energy. If you have big knobby tires, you're losing energy. And if your bike is heavy, you're losing energy. So you could upgrade from a cheap Walmart bike to you could go on a Craigslist and get like a used road bike. Wouldn't even like, don't even worry about carbon. People will steal carbon anyway. Get an aluminum bike with uh, no front shocks on the fork, skinnier tires. It's going to be lighter, 
you're going to go so much faster, so much farther. And yeah. you know, maybe some, some better components. If you have a better um, derailleur and you have more gears, though, honestly, like if you've got less than five miles to go, even having more gears doesn't matter that much. It's really like, can you shed weight? Can you lose energy leaks by getting a better bike? Uh, and then if you can figure those things out and you still want more speed or you want more comfort, look into e-bikes. But at that point, I would look into like class one, which will assist you up to 20 miles an hour instead of 28. Um, and then just look into cheaper bikes. Maybe, you know, you might not need a 625 watt hour battery because you don't have 46 miles to commute every day. If you've got like 10 miles of commuting in a day, then almost any battery is going to to suit you. Um, I know Taryn from the Linus tech tips team was able to do his commuting on, I think it's like a rad wagon. It's like $1,500. So red wagon. Gotcha. A rad wagon. Not a it's, red. No, wagon. it's you, a little you red can do wagon. A radio flyer. It's just a little, one of those. Yeah. Add a motor to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah. And if you're getting an expensive bike too, you got to consider where is my commute leading me? And is it a place where I do want to lock up an expensive bike? Am I just the risk of theft, oh, yeah. what is it there? I, uh, because then you don't want an e-bike. You do want the used Craigslist thing. So if it gets stolen, you can just get another one. I, I not only bought the e-bike, I bought an insurance policy on the e-bike. Yeah. Yeah, you, it was you really should. You know what point. sucks? My insurance on my motorcycle is $100 a year. For the e-bike, it was 300 Just because of the likelihood of bike theft being like... I think so. Much, much higher. Yeah, it makes sense. It's part of owning I, a bike. Yeah. You just got to mitigate that risk. You can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'll take that bet. It's worth it. Because like, I, I am lucky enough to be in a financial position where I can have a car and a bike. But if I wasn't, boy, I've been doing a lot of anything I need to do on that bike. And even if the combined cost of the bike and the insurance policy is five grand, that's pretty cheap when we're talking about cars. And yeah, if you I didn't could have replace to buy a, car, a whole bunch of bikes whew. or have a good insurance policy way before you have to buy like a... A big car. And if you live in an urban area, like here in Denver, we have Zipcar. Yeah. Between Zipcar, Uber, and bikes, I could get by without a bike. The only thing I would have trouble with is getting up to the mountains for skiing and mountain biking. And, like, both of those are kind of, like, do you kind of do those if you have money. Otherwise, I don't know. There are, like, ski bum ways to do it, but there's just certain sports where it's a little unrealistic if you don't have extra funds on hand. Yeah. So you would just maybe just not have to do them. Um, so yeah, that's kind of all I'll say there. Maybe at some point when, whenever you convince yourself to get an e-bike, we'll do an e-bike episode. All right. I'll get one tomorrow. There you go. Yeah. But yeah. Bottom line, upgrade your bike first, just bike wise. It's going to be way cheaper. And then when you're going to look into e-bikes, start looking at like the thousand to $1,500 range and see if what exists there will meet your needs. You definitely don't need the one I got. Uh, that's it for cult member Q&A. So as always, thank you so much for hanging out with us here on the Inforium. We got to jump into a meeting real quick here. So uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, go over to the Inforium.com. And if you want to find the show notes for this episode, which will at the very least have a book to the or link to the book that we talked about, it's going to be the Inforium.com slash 318. So that's all I got to say. Uh, thanks as always for hanging out with us and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you.